Hey, this is Dr. Rob Orman, and you are listening to Stimulus, a podcast that deconstructs ideas and strategies to live and work with intent. Don't just suck it up. Think differently. Here we go. Hello, my friends. For those of you coming back, welcome back. And if you're new to the show, it's great to have you. Today's guest, Dr. Michelle Harper. She is an emergency physician. She is the author of the New York Times best-selling memoir, The Beauty in Breaking. And there's a chance that this isn't the first time you've heard Michelle. She's been interviewed all over the place on Trevor Noah, Fresh Air, CNN, NBC. She is also a widely published essayist, often focusing on race and medicine, but even more so writing on her personal journey that started as a child in an abusive household, then to undergrad at Harvard Med School at Stony Brook, New York, and now her life as an attending physician. And as you'll hear in this interview, she's really got a personal mission to be a guardian for the vulnerable. But first, let me try something a little different here. I'm going to do the bottom line up front and then something a little special. So the bottom line up front, in case you're an ad skipper, this episode is brought to you by Ring Rescue. Ring Rescue, in my opinion, now the standard for stuck ring removal, something that happens really commonly in the hospital. Ring Rescue removes stuck rings in a non-destructive way, and they also have an amazing non-hydrating lubricant that works with the Ring Rescue device that significantly reduces the need for ring cutting. Use the code STIMULUS at checkout when you purchase your Ring Rescue finger compression device to get an extra bottle of their lube for free. The lube is almost worth the price of admission alone. You get an extra one, it's like getting a chocolate chip cookie with extra chocolate chips that you didn't even know were coming. Use the code STIMULUS at checkout. Just go to ringrescue.com. I'll put a link in the show notes. Now, that is the ad that comes from the brain. Here's the one that comes from the heart. I once knew a man with a sausage finger whose ring had been stuck 40 years. True story. Back in the day, a little saw would hold sway, cutting the ring amidst tears. There's a better way, I'll tell you today. A finger cuff gives a squeeze and as quick as you please, you've got shrinkage. Yes, that finger's got shrinkage. A dash of lube, manipulate that ring thoughtfully as you choose. Ring rescue plus you, thus success. Reduce the swelling, apply the lubricant and remove that ring. And let me tell you that fellow with the sausage digit whose ring had been stuck for four decades and said, never, never will you get this off without cutting it off, my friend. Well, ring rescue plus you did the trick. Okay, something a little different there. A little musically backed, poorly rhyming little ditty for our new sponsor, Ring Rescue. And I'll have you know that I actually sang the first few versions of that, and you're welcome for not publishing those takes. Seriously. Not good. All right, now, let's get on with the show. Our conversation with emergency physician, New York Times bestselling author of The Beauty in Breaking, Dr. Michelle Harper. What has surprised you about celebrity, both the good and the bad? I do not consider myself a celebrity, but what surprised me about going on this path and um, being more visible, because I'm an ER doctor and you know our, our, our work is really confined and I'm a private person and like every private person, I had to write a memoir. So what surprised <laughs> me is how accessible I am now, especially because of social media. People are contacting me from all walks of life, from all over the world, for any conceivable reason, actually. And so it's nice because I like speaking to different people, getting to know different kinds of people. It can also be overwhelming, that amount of access and energy all the time. And because everything's online, it's 24-7. So I'm learning how to manage that, how to have boundaries, how to say, okay, I'm only going to check social media at certain hours, and I cannot possibly respond to all the messages. So, so, so that's been the most surprising part. What do those boundaries look like? Part of it is just because in the very beginning, I feel that if somebody contacts me, 
I have to respond. And if somebody asks me something, I have to answer. And maybe that's just a job hazard. Maybe because maybe because we are ER doctors. And so communication is so important. And if someone asks a question... You are embracing Mtala too much. <laughs> yes. Yes, I am. Like if someone asks a question, they deserve an answer. That cannot transfer to other fields in the same way. You know, in, in the emergency department, there are boundaries. We're there for eight to 12 hours and then it's over. Whereas in the writing world, people are contacting me on Instagram, Facebook, the Rainbow website, literally 24-7. I can't respond. And I've given myself permission to not reply to everyone. And, and certain people, quite frankly, shouldn't be replied to. And that's okay also. <laughs> Are you getting negative feedback or I mean I know I know you're getting a lot of love because I mean especially in in our community I mean it's just wow here's here is one of our own who is you know I said this in a few emails I me mean, such an incredible ambassador but we're in such a politically and racially charged time right, right now and that's that's a lot right. of what your your writing is about so what what's been that aspect of it I was concerned about that but really the response has been positive and supportive. So, you know, there was there was one troll one day, but I got rid of him very quickly and it was easy. I thought he would come back soon. He didn't. He just gave up. He wasn't a very effective troll. <laughs> come on, own it, troll. Own it. Commit. But it's actually been more positive than I anticipated. I am grateful for that. But by the same token, I'm going to do what I'm going to do regardless. So, while it makes it easier not to have all kinds of negative comments all the time, whether or not it happens doesn't concern me. Oh, here's the other thing. I also have learned to not read the comments. So when I had the first medium piece, I started to see a couple of people say, well, you shouldn't be in medicine anyway. Not I, I don't, what they're basing that on. I'm not sure. But, but, I, but I stopped reading the comments. But the recent piece in the cut, I, I didn't read the comments. Talking about some of your other writings, actually, this is this is in your book too. Not all of your coworkers come off, you know, smelling like cherries. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like it's right, like there's right. definitely some rebukes. There's the one doc who you know you've just picked up three patients, and the fourth patient comes in. I mean, we've all experienced that. Right, I mean, right. I, I've experienced that. You know what? I'm gonna have to say I've probably done that, Joe. <laughs> and you know, and then there's and then there's a nurse who's like sipping on her cola, and there's an agitated patient, and you're not naming them, yeah, but. I would imagine they know who they are. And right. so right. how have your coworkers responded to this? It's true. I do go to many lengths, medical, legally, ethically, to not say the specific location of the case I'm talking about, change patient names, provider names. So, so there's that. So there's that level of protection that I'm sure that person feels because they're not being specifically outed, but they often know who they are. And so I never know what the response is going to be, but so far, it hasn't been very awkward. So the recent case you're talking about, your, the cut article that just came out, the essay I did it in the cut, where I'm speaking about an interaction where a patient comes in. She's a young Black woman who's been assaulted. So she's there getting evaluated for head trauma. She came in alone. She wanted to make a police report. Per protocol, we called the police on her behalf because she wanted to file a report. Next thing I know, nobody had signed up for her. I hear screaming and yelling for help. She wants someone to get out of the room. She wants help. And no one's doing anything. There is a nurse assigned to her who does nothing. And I say, well, what is going on? Who is that? What's going on? And then her nurse says, oh, the police are there making a report, which for me is only that much more concerning because the police are there and she's screaming for help. So I end up going to help her. The police officer is very aggressive to her and then to me. I ask him to leave. He does leave, ultimately. And then when I leave the room, my colleague says he was saying something about how he's going to come back and arrest you for interfering with his investigation. There's no legal grounds for any of that. She's not in custody. She wanted to make a report. Long story short, the sergeant comes. He is nice and deferential to me. And to the patient saying that, you know what, we don't, we don't have to be here, collects the two officers and leaves. You know, and I tell that story because not only is there an issue with policing that needs to be addressed, but we have those same issues in our own house. Like the fact that no one felt the need to help her, didn't recognize the danger she might be in. And then when it came to me, nobody felt the need to help me either. 
I want to loop back to that in a moment. I want to look into your medical practice a little bit. Mm-hmm. You talk in a lot of interviews about like the, these issues that you were, you're just addressing, but right. you're doing documentation. You are mm-hmm. setting fractures and suturing lacs and intubating and all that stuff and right. wearing PPE and PPE yeah. and PPE. <laughs> and PPE. <laughs> so, all right. Is your favorite thing to see pop up on the tracking board? Favorite. Honestly, I don't have a favorite. I don't have a favorite. And I never know what it's going to be because, you know, as you know, something could say, oh, oh, this happened. Something could say, I kind of have a headache and I walk in and the man has been shot in the head. (laughs) But I never know what it's going to be. So nothing's a favorite. I just go in and, and see what happens. You're kind of like, you know what? I'm the mother of dragons. I will I, <laughs> I embrace you Just embrace that. Yeah. What is your least favorite? Okay. So least favorite. And this, this I had to think about because there are two that are close. Anything related to pus, but it lost to a live, live insects because pus, oh. no matter what it is, I deal with it. It stays in the room, but a live insect Mm. Beg bugs, whatever. Oh, there's the chance you may take it with you. So that that is my least favorite. Have you ever opened up a wound and had maggots pour out? Oh yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. That's happened. Or just like moved the sheet. You know, somebody comes in with leg pain, and <laughs> and like the nurse at triage say, unable to assess due to clothing. What do you mean unable to assess? <laughs> Clothing comes on and off. And so like, just, I move the sheet aside or I pull up the pant leg and then yes, they all crawl out. Yeah. that. <laughs> but at least maggots, you can see them. They don't jump, yeah. or, you know, so. They're doing a job in there, but they uh, are. maggots were my weakness. Any kind of pus or vomit or stool or yeah. um, even like lice or crabs, but maggots, <sighs> I can remember every maggot I've, I ever saw. Right. Okay. All right. Right. Now so, there's the, the 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 flashbacks you get of them. So yeah, that's yeah. Ha- having them right now for Moon Thirty Five. Okay. <laughs> Before you go into a shift, what's your pregame? Okay. So my pregame is I prepare my food for the shift. Hopefully, these days it gets more and more challenging. But usually, I prepare all my food, even my liquids. I have my canister my favorite coffee. And then I have my canister of my um, usually probiotic chai tea, and then a separate canister of plain water, and I'll mix the chai tea and water. So everything's ready for me to go. And then in my car, because I have a long commute, I'll listen to some spiritual person. It's usually these days Eckhart Tolle. And that gets me in the mind frame to just be ready for whatever transpires. What about your post game? Like, say you have an intense mm. shift, like the shift you just described. I would imagine that even recounting it, you feel a little bit of a visceral sense and you just, yeah. you're emotionally and physically exhausted, but your mind is racing. So you have these two aspects. So, how do you decompress after that? It can take hours. Like, no matter what time we get off work, you know, fine. We get off work maybe at 11 o'clock, but I, I can't go to bed then till one or one thirty. Mm-hmm. There is the benefit of my long commute. That in a way does help me decompress as I'm driving. And I'll listen to, interesting, I'll usually listen to the news, which, which is a bizarre thing to think of as helping to decompress, especially given the news these days. But yeah. I listen to the news. But then I also, I always end my day with tea. Now, it might also involve speaking to someone in the inner circle, like my aunt or a friend. There might be red wine. If there's wine, it's only ever red. But always, always, there is herbal tea at the end of the night. A lot of it, like four to five cups of it. (laughs) Is that just when you get home? And what is that herbal tea? Yeah. When I get home, it's either traditional medicinals, like uh, nighty-night tea, or some kind of yogi tea, bedtime, or caramel something or other. That yogi bedtime tea is just yeah. like, oh, it is liquid nighty night. It really is. It's so soothing. <laughs> Do you ever take Ambien before a night shift, like to try to sleep or? or Benadryl. I do. Mm. I, I will do Benadryl with my sleepy time tea. I wish that there was a class in medical school or at least emergency medicine residency on how to freaking sleep. I know. And, oh, you know what? Actually, here we go. I'm going to take that on. I'm taking on that mission. Good. <laughs> 
<laughs> we need and it. I couldn't sleep the other night. So I took an Ambien. I was watching my sleep and I was like, you know, deep sleep, REM sleep, deep sleep. As soon yeah. as I took that, no more deep sleep. It was just like you're tricking yourself into, right. into like you're being, it's kind of like you're knocked out, but you're not right. rejuvenating. And honestly, that's why I stayed away from it. And, but before night shift, I will do Benadryl. It's been helpful. And I feel mm -hmm. like I, I sleep well. How many hours do you sleep before night shift? I have to arrange sleeping before night shift. It takes me like two days arranging a sleep schedule to do yeah. that. So, so I really try and make sure to get at least, at least five hours. My preference is six to seven if possible. Wow. But, but, but honestly, even if I a lot for seven hours, there's usually a good amount of time. I'm just laying there. Mm -hmm. so. Five hours. Right. That's that puts you up in the annals of awesomeness. Yes. Nice. No, I have to. I have to. I can. I know it's very difficult otherwise. I want to get back to your book. And mm -hmm. there's a story about a long conversation you had with a patient in the mental health unit. And there's yeah. a nurse listening to this. And you know, this, I don't know how long this conversation was, maybe an hour. Yeah. And afterwards, a nurse said, you went into the wrong specialty. You should have been a psychiatrist or, or something to that effect. I actually, I'm getting chills thinking about that because it, it kind of hit me in the heart because in my yeah. first five years as an attending, I was like, I don't know if this is right for me. I started the application process to anesthesia, to ophthalmology, I said, like different than psychology, psychiatry. Right. I was really questioning myself. And so my question for you is what called you to this specialty to emergency medicine. And do you ever feel like it might not have been the right choice? I do feel it was the right choice. And I, I think that, and I, I talk about my book for people who haven't read it, um, The Beauty and Breaking is a memoir. And it's part about me and challenges that I overcame growing up in an abusive household with a batter as a father. And then it's, they're interwoven between different patient stories and their, their own journeys, healing and transformation. I feel that when I was young, I was groomed for emergency medicine, you know, because when you're in an abusive household, all you have is a snapshot in time. Is this situation right now going to be immediately life-threatening or is it likely just to kind of blow over? We can manage it or is everything going to be okay for now? That's how I grew up. Those are the skills I had to learn growing up and they immediately transfer to how we have to operate in the ER. So in some ways, I really feel that I was groomed for it. And then ultimately, because I was used to that chaos, because I was used to danger, but I came to learn that healing is possible, something better is possible. And I wanted to be part of that support system for people in their lives. That's what got me to emergency medicine. And, and that's what keeps me in emergency medicine. So for me, it is right. And now, now in my life, I, I want to do some other things as well. That's why I'm writing because in the ER, I can help one per well, well, there's no visitors allowed anymore, but, but one person at a time, family, community, but with writing, I can reach people throughout the world. So it's, it's all part of my same life mission. What did you think EM would be like? And then when you got there, what was it really like? Well, what I didn't account for, what I didn't realize was the levels and layers of bureaucracy. And the fact that in the US, healthcare really is for profit. And that tends to be the mission of the work, given the model of the US healthcare system, which can make it almost impossible to do the job that I want to do for people. So yes, there's the medical legal aspect where we have to protect ourselves depending where we work. Like when I worked in Philadelphia, we may do more testing than is indicated because we have to protect ourselves from frivolous lawsuits. There's that. There's the fact that administrators often do not side with us, protect us, help us to do our jobs because they answer to whoever runs the hospital, who answers to insurance companies, who answer to the paycheck they want and the bonuses. So I didn't account for all of that. I was very naive. I thought, I want to, you know, like everybody else, I want to help people. I'll just do what's <laughs> right. And as long as I'm doing what's right, then I'll be fine. But no, there's a business aspect that we have to answer to as well. And so that's why I always say when young people ask me or when it comes up in interviews, what does one have to know to do this work? And what I always say is that love is not enough. Love's not going to be enough to keep you in medicine. It's just not like, like any feel. 
Can I curse on this show? Oh yeah, this it just it, hang on, hang on a sec. Let me go. Boop, got the E stamp right there. Yeah. <laughs> okay, you know, like any Liz Gilbert would say, like any field has a shit sandwich, and mm-hmm. do do you want to be there enough to eat the shit sandwich that goes along with it? And so we have that in medicine as well, which is why if this is your calling, if you're there for a greater purpose, then you will eat the shit sandwich, and it makes sense. But if that's not the case, it's going to be very hard to stay. And that's why we see so many people. There are many people. But one of the reasons so many people are actively trying to get out of medicine. Interesting that you bring up the administration. I had actually not thought of that as sort of the present that you get to unwrap when you come out of your yeah. training because you're totally protected from it. And I, I had always thought of it as that you are the receiving end of, of everything, You know, all the patients, all the phone calls, all the volume, like anything that happens, like it's got to go through you. You are the rate limiting step of everything, but it really is the bureaucracy and the administration yeah. that you don't get to know as a med student. You don't get to know it as a resident because as a resident, right. it's so beautiful. You are, you're kind of like in this monastery, like the Shaolin monk or nun who's just training right. in the art. And then it's like, all right, now here's your sepsis measures. Exactly. You don't get those blood cultures in two hours. Well, you're fired. Exactly. (laughs) Right. And it doesn't matter. Like, yeah, sure, it's not tied to any outcomes, but it's just what we do. So do it. (laughs) (laughs) And you know, you're you're talking about talking to people about going into medicine, and you know, people say, right, like I want to help people, or I love science, or. We both went to med school. We know that some right. people, because they wanted a steady job and a good paycheck, surprise, not recession-proof, gotcha. Exactly. There's this um, really beautiful quote from your book that I want to get into. You said, unlike the war zone that was my childhood, I would be in control of that space, providing relief or at least a reprieve to those who called out for help. I would see to it that there was a shelter in the spaces of which I was the guardian. Mm-hmm. Now, is that narrative you now that you're here, you're an attending physician, you can look back and analyze your motivations? Or was that you? I mean, I looked at your bio. I mean, you've been on this path for a long time, you know, like, I don't know, were you like, like a young, in the young doctor's committee in high school or something? <laughs> was that yeah. you looking forward yeah. before even medical school that, okay, this is what I want to do and this is who I want to be? That was the theme that ran through my life. So, always volunteering, always going into lower financially resourced communities, immigrant communities, working with women. So that that was a thread that was always going to be the case. If I wasn't doing medicine, I would be in civil rights law, for example. What kind of patient when they come into the emergency department, do you just like have such a heart for that, you know, that maybe others don't have a heart for? I'm really protective of children. I know that. And so I know that, you know, if children come in with certain complaints, abdominal pain, or even this is a medical show, so I can use medical words. So even dysuria, for example, I know I screen kids for violence or abuse more than my colleagues will. Or, you know, I I had a child who he was young, maybe five or six, and he came in with injuries. And we had to do a trauma workup on him. And when we were putting the IV, he just lay there. He didn't move at all. So I was concerned that he was he was with his mom, but his like dad had custody. It, it was a, a challenging home environment that he had. And he just didn't respond to pain at all. So I spoke to him alone because these are things that go off in my mind, these signs where I, I will take the extra steps to talk to children and do what I can to make sure they're okay. And if they're not, then to address it. So while I feel like I resonate with all kinds of people, yeah, I guess the the people who might be in danger have a, a, which could be anyone in the ER we know, does have a special place in my heart. Going that extra step with children, I think takes so much activation energy because you know what comes down the pipe, right? All those next steps. And it's just, and- you know, an emergency doc is required to report if you suspect, but I think that a lot of folks would give the situation the benefit of the doubt. I mean, I hate I hate to say this, but right. knowing what you're about to get yourself into, I mean, you're going to take heat from the parents and the police mm-hmm. and social services, and it's just it's one of the most horrible things for yeah. all parties to go through. It is. 
I agree. And even when we go down that route, even when there is abuse, there's often not an easy or even good or acceptable solution. I don't mind taking the heat. I'm fine with the heat. It was forged in fire. So I'm oh, okay. you cl- you clearly are fine with taking the heat. <laughs> I mean, I, uh, that's kind of a common theme throughout your your writing. It's like, yeah, you know, not only am I okay taking the heat, I might just uh, rub these sticks together and just generate a little little bit of fire. Yeah, it's okay. It's okay with me. <laughs> I want to stay on this uh, a bit. Yeah. I'm curious as to what your clinical practice looks like as a reflection of your mission that we were just talking about. For example, and you're mentioning Mm -hmm. Philly, you know, Philly, it's beaten deep into our psyche to cover yourself from a medical legal standpoint. Philly, the worst. yeah, it's known as the worst. worst. You know, you think it'd be Florida, you think it'd be New York, it's Philly, you know, and listeners might be surprised to know that anyone who works in Philly has a different medical practice than the the rest of the world because of the med mal risk. It's crazy. But, you know, no matter where you are, you're taught to imagine that your chart, each chart you do is going to be blown up 10 feet in a courtroom and highlighted for the asinine thing that you said that totally damns your practice. I mean, I think that this fear is more harmful than beneficial to patients. Personally, earlier in my career, I did a lot of cover your ass medicine. I mean, I, I hate to say this, but I knew right. that it was going to be low yield for the patient, but it's like, you know what? That's what you got to do to protect yourself. I mean, like reflexively ordering a CAT scan yeah. when you could just watch and wait or have a shared discussion, a shared decision-making discussion about what the patient wanted. And I'm curious what your practice looks like now. I mean, you're so like self-actualized with all of this and you've gone through the process. How about now versus when you first came out? I agree with you on everything you said. And I had to really think about who I am and how I want to practice and to what extent I want to submit in that way. So even though I live in Philadelphia, I don't practice in Philadelphia anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't. I, part of the reason why I have a long commute, because I go to Jersey, <laughs> where, where it's just more reasonable. So when I think about my clinical practice, there are pluses and minuses. There's always compromise. Nothing is perfect. But as I look for where I'm going to work, I want to work in a place where where there is room to have those discussions with patients, to come up with a reasonable plan, to do the right thing, not to do 1 million tests just because some ambulance chasing attorney and, and a patient who is trying to hit the lottery you know, might blow up that chart and sue you just hoping the hospital will settle. And then you have to, you have to put it on every job application for the rest of your life. Okay. So I try not to work in those places. That's how I've been able to manage it so that I can still have meaningful work. I mean, other, other things that are important to me clinically is to work in diverse communities. They're predominantly black and brown um, immigrant communities. Often where I work, I'm like speaking Spanish 30% of the day, maybe 40, depending on the day. Um, low financially resourced because I feel like it's easy to get relative to American healthcare. It's easy to get the services you need in certain major cities, but outside of them, there's a need. So I feel it an imperative for me to go where the need is. Where did you learn Spanish? Oh, so, okay. So after undergrad, I I mean, I I took Spanish A in undergrad, but then I took time off. And for part of that time, I traveled and went to Ecuador and Costa Rica. I was doing um, volunteering abroad and learning Spanish abroad and took some literature class also. So that's where I learned it. And then when I went to residency in South Bronx, like, thank God I had some Spanish because maybe (laughs) 70% of my day was literally all Spanish. So I kind of got better, but unfortunately I've lost it some because there's not as much Spanish and Philadelphia, for example, but enough to get by, enough for me to function in the ER. So I'm grateful. <laughs> you know who's taught me the most Spanish was patients, yeah. especially bilingual patients. I would, you know, yeah. do an exam in Spanish and I'd say, like, how do I, how do I say this? And this is this is so crude, but you know, you, you got to do a lot of rectal exams in the emergency right. department. Right. And I didn't know the phrasing of, okay, I need to do a rectal exam. I'm gonna put this finger in your bottom. When I was just learning Spanish. And I, you know, I, I had like some phrases. I didn't have an interpreter. I had like the cold gel on my, my finger. Yeah. And, and I said, and, and I, <laughs> I held up my finger and I said, as a guy with a GI bleed, and I, I looked at him, I said, hace frío. <laughs> 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 and he, he said, no, señor, 
voy a poner un dedo en su ano. I want to get back to Yogi T. We'll get a little, get a little spiritual here. Because a lot of listeners work in the emergency department or work in hospitals. And you've got this really interesting quote in your book. I'd love to explore and then how others might reflect on what they're seeing and doing every day. And it's that the chaos of emergency medicine can show you where the center is. The center is where we find the sturdy roots of insight that can't be wind-thrown by passing storms. In their grounding, they offer nourishment that can, should we allow it, lead to lives of ever-increasing growth. I want to put that in a book of poetry. That last part, should we allow it, lead to lives of ever-increasing growth. That's the master skill is allowing it, is being open to that. But I feel like, especially now, you know, the words I hear are exhausted and fed up and people feel weathered by the storm. They feel pretty beat up. Where or how do you find the center or the sturdy roots or the insight? And that is the, the goal in life in general. And in the emergency department, there is so much chaos. We don't know what's coming in. Um, at any given point in time, we're always multitasking. The skill for me is to be still and steady in those moments. And that's exactly what happens outside of the ER as well. How I understand life is that the deal in being human is that tragic things will happen and hard things will happen. And it's not if they will, but Perhaps when they will and how we will meet that moment always is the question. And so that's part of the reason why in my book, I, I open with um, the image of Kintakoroi, the Japanese art in pottery, where if pottery is broken, then it is repaired with an amalgam of precious metals. So the thinking is that these cracks are then highlighted in gold or platinum or silver because this dish, this item now is more beautiful for the mending. We don't want to hide it. We don't want to pretend like it didn't happen. Just like the things that happen to us in life. We don't pretend it didn't happen. That's not the point. The point is that we survived it and we rebuilt better and we are now more resilient and more beautiful for what has occurred. So I feel it is the same in life and in the ER, that that is how the center happens, in the appreciation for our experiences, in sitting with those experiences, in transcending those experiences. I would love for you to elaborate. You said still and steady. And as you're talking, I got the sense that you really reflect on these experiences. If you stay just torn up and don't come back to, your, to, to the center, you're going to stay torn up. What does still and steady look like for you? I mean, how do you get there? For me, it is a process. I mean, there was, for much of my childhood, for example, when someone's in acute crisis, what I had to do was just get through it. And I couldn't reflect. I was in survival mode, fight or flight. So it was later when I grew up that I had to process. By the same token, some of the experiences I have in the ER, we touched upon that really difficult case where I was threatened with arrest. That happened over a year ago. I mean, I had to sit with that for a while. I had to process that. It did not feel good that I was in potentially imminent danger with the police officer. And I have to tell you, it felt worse to know that the place I was continuing to work, the place I went to work was not going to help me. I had to process all of those emotions and all of that understanding, and then decide, well, what am I going to do with this? I'm going to go to work. I'm going to help people. And then I'm going to amplify this story because we need to talk about this as professionals. We need to not only talk about it, we need to act. So that is my process, not just for that case, but for everything. And what helps me to do that, just to give a concrete answer of what helps me, some of the things that help me besides my is <laughs> meditation and yoga. I do the physical practice of yoga where I often get insights. I mean, yes, I'm moving my body, but I often get insights during that time. It's a time for me to be still and to receive and to understand. 
Have you ever done yoga before a night shift? Actually, no, I really can't do anything before <laughs> night shift. <laughs> okay, no, no. I'm just just suggesting. I I, I, yeah. I did it a handful. I did it a handful of times, and it was just like, wow, this this night shift is going really well. Wow. You, know, you, kind, you kind of what you set up. You wake up a couple hours beforehand. I don't know. Maybe it's yeah. like eight hours before because your commute's so long. <laughs> but you wake up and then just go through a series of yoga poses and doing all your. I mean, I'm, I'm not like skilled at yoga, but just that movement and getting your body movement because it's going to be it's going from such a stagnant place and getting your brain juices flowing i was in my late 40s by the time i tried it i yeah. wish i thought of it earlier but yeah i could yeah. see that oh, it's a good idea i could see i could see the benefits of that i want to get into something that I, I got a sense of as you were talking about what it was like at the hospital and what you were you were receiving these kind of these indignities that happen uh, yeah. to micro microaggressions and <laughs> you wrote about college and <laughs> I'm like whoa well that's it's not holding back so what at one of the first social events at Harvard I attended mm-hmm. that's I, this is where you went to undergrad was mm-hmm. Harvard and at one of the first social events at Harvard I attended a white male classmate told me that I couldn't possibly be black because I didn't speak like the two black people he knew from his neighborhood and since he was clearly the arbiter of blackness yeah <laughs> oh my god he he felt like he had the right to say that to me yeah. What I didn't know at the time was that this would be a fitting introduction to the four years of micro, well, really macro aggressions to follow. And so many of the vignettes in your book have aspects of microaggression, repeated indignities, mm-hmm. you know, intentional or not, intentional or not. I don't, who knows? I doubt he was being intentional, but it was just kind of what was interwoven into his fabric. Mm-hmm. And nonetheless, they're derogatory and prejudicial. And as they continue through days, weeks, months, years, right. lifetime, like they feed self doubt. And you said parenthetically, you know, really macroaggressions, micro and macroaggressions. Yeah. How do you distinguish between a micro and a macroaggression? That's probably why I put in there macro because I don't think it's micro at all. I mean, it, it is it is so derogatory constantly. And it's part of these larger systems of structural violence. And in, in, in this case, we're talking about structural racism that there's nothing micro about it. It is it is that lack of understanding. It is that mindset that leads to hiring practices and practices around promotions. It's all the same, and it needs to be regarded seriously for that reason. So there are huge consequences to that, not just in terms of quality of life. It's it is more challenging and less pleasant for me to navigate this American landscape as a result. It also limits people's ability to achieve our ideas of the American dream, that we don't have the same access. So that's huge. That's macro. I call it a macro aggression. And I, and I invite people to explore it and dismantle it. I would think a lot of these, let's just call them aggressions, right? Yeah. <laughs> Whatever they are, mm-hmm. you know, and whether they're overt, covert, realized, not realized. Right. I mean, I, I think that a lot of them, because they become such a pattern and are so... Yeah part of the structure, people just don't realize it's happening. And two mm-hmm. questions on this. What do you think is the most effective way? And I'm not talking on an institutional level or a governmental right. level, but on an interpersonal level to respond to an individual that can lead to change for mm-hmm. either party and also leave you feeling better rather than pissed, angry, or even despondent. Because mm-hmm. like this is easy, right? Like fist to fist, right. head to head. Fuck you. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right. Like how do you plant a seed of understanding in someone else? It depends. Because if you're on the receiving end and from a, a more disempowered group, it's exhausting. Like f- for me to talk to him, I, and I believe in that moment, I, I honestly don't remember what I said to him or didn't say. Largely, I, d- I didn't say much to him. It was too exhausting. I had to take care of myself. And I don't see it as my job to change him. What should have happened is that his white male friends should have spoken to him. It's their responsibility. They're not on the receiving end. They don't have to protect themselves from that indignity in that moment. So they should speak to him. And then it's his work to look at it and make change. It's really not my responsibility at all. Just like if we want to, okay, you know, most not all, but if we're looking at, for example, rape and the rape of women, it's not women's job to stop rape. 
primarily. It's for men to look at the behavior and change themselves. It works the same way. Now, yes, we always have situations where we can buy into our own oppression. That's true. You know, I'd give the story about, you know, how often people of different groups who are oppressed or pitted against each other, fine. Yeah, we got to do our own internal work too. But whoever's dominant in the situation, it's their responsibility to have self-reflection, insight, the willingness to understand, and then the willingness to act. There has to be personal accountability. I have a personal accountability for myself. I hope that everyone has that. And what I do specifically, apart from just self-care for me in the moment, you know, one of the things I've decided to do also is that's a big reason why I write to help further the dialogue, to uncover these private moments, whether it's that conversation that happened at Harvard or that moment, that mo- there's different moments, different moments in the ER <laughs> with the police. I make that private moment public because we need to talk about this. Do you ever on the interpersonal level, when it happens, mm-hmm. maybe with somebody that, that you're comfortable with, pause and try to frame it differently for them? Oh, yes. I do that. I do that all the time. All the time, because these situations come up all the time. I mean, even if it's a patient who comes in who, in terms of sex, was born a male and identifies as a woman, so the pronouns are she, and this is how she identifies. And then someone will say, I didn't sign up for that patient. It's a mid-level provider who signed up. And I overhear him. I'm not directly involved in the care, but I overhear him making a joke, I will say something like there's that joke doesn't serve the care of the patient or the team or anyone. There's not a place for that homophobic comment. There just isn't. So all the time, these scenarios come up where I will directly address an indignity. Big indignity from your book. You've been asked this like in a kajillion interviews about this. I want to address this to the people who will be in the position of listening to this. This was, you were, I think, doing QA for your group and there was a a hospital-wide leadership position and you were the only candidate. You didn't get it. And your group director said, and I I don't know if it was because you're a woman or because you're black or a combination of the two. And they said, yeah, the hospital's not going to promote you because of one of those two or both of those. And your group director, you describe as a guy who's like nice and compassionate. And then after that conversation, closed the door and sat down at his desk. And what would you have wanted to be his response to that? Like rather than, yeah, you know, at the hospital, this is just how this hospital works. It's a, it's an old right. boy network. They just don't do that. And then, and then after that, you typed up your resignation letter. Right. And, but let's go back in time and mm-hmm. say, all right, you can go pop into that room and just whisper in his ear and say, here's maybe another way to go about this. When I took the position, I didn't realize, uh, obviously, I didn't realize that everyone knew it was a racist and sexist hospital. There was massive turnover. Uh, Women and people of color were always leaving. You couldn't get promoted or treated fairly there. Apparently, there was a lawsuit. It, It obviously, before my time there, it obviously didn't really change much. It stayed the same. And my colleagues, when I got there, took me out as they do with anybody new who comes and like, well, we hope you stay because this is really how it goes here and we'll see how it goes. (laughs) So, so, um, so yeah, I didn't get the position. They left it open. He said, you know, you're super qualified, but they don't promote women or people of color here. I left and I found out shortly after that they did hire someone for it. It was a white male nurse um, who they gave the position to. And so what I would say to that chair and other chairs, you know, who fancy that they're good, decent human beings is they have to try harder. They have to be willing to be uncomfortable. They have to stand up and fight. They have to be okay with the fire and the fallout. That's what you do when you have privilege and power. In the ER, that's why I stand up for certain patients, because if I have the privilege and the power, I have to use it for good. That's the duty. That's duty. There enter choice again. We all have choices. We all have decisions. Take the decision-making leadership to task and not just, yep, that's just how it is. It is an adequate effort. 
which is which is why that hospital. It's not the only hospital. I mean, that, that's part of the reason why I changed the name. I didn't want people to get caught up. And I didn't want to give them an easy scapegoat and say, oh, look, it's only that place. It's not mm-hmm. only that place. Right. This is like hospital anywhere U.S. You wrote an article in April this year that was titled, When This War Is Over, Many of Us Will Leave Medicine. And that was right when COVID was getting a foothold. And in there, you say, the administrators who notified me that, quote, doctors don't get paid sick leave, end quote, and thank you for your service, which are graciously sent in two separate emails. Just another reminder that we healthcare providers are regarded as more disposable than our PPE. And I'm actually sure that that first email about doctors don't get sick leave was sent with a subject line, gentle reminder. (laughs) (laughs) But that last line really struck me when you said healthcare providers are regarded as more disposable than our PPE. And you kind of saw like like a little glimmer of this in the beginning, but it it has Mm -hmm. not panned out. You would hope that leadership and government would be on this like crazy, making sure that healthcare providers are fully taken care of. You know, I mean, like the military gets the equipment that it needs, especially on the front line. For the most part, sometimes I don't, for the most part. But we know that is not what's been happening, especially as COVID has progressed. And then I see these arguments from physician groups and some mm-hmm. in government disturbingly arguing for hydroxychloroquine or whatever politically politically motivated topic du jour. You know, there's like these right. press conferences, everyone in their white coats, you know, surrounded by other white coats, rather than, hey, we need freaking PPE and testing availability like a Manhattan right. Project, all hands on deck. How is this bubbling in your brain? I feel that this pandemic has laid bare some hard realities that we have to reckon with. And it gets back to the issues with healthcare in this country. It is true. We still do not have enough PPE. We still do not have adequate testing. That hasn't changed months in. We are now about to go into the fall. God only knows. I mean, I hope it doesn't happen this way, but it feels like shit will really hit the fan soon. And we're not prepared. But you know, what's that famous uh, line? I'm paraphrasing. Every system is perfectly designed to get the outcomes it does. This is not coincidence. It's just not the priority. PBE is expensive. It's not the priority. Right now, hospitals are hemorrhaging money because of the payment model. So what's happening? Healthcare providers, the same ones who have just recovered from coronavirus, the same ones who are dealing with the stress of it, that that it's still affecting their families and their own mental health. Well, they're being furloughed. They're being fired. Hours are being cut. Pay is being cut. Benefits are being cut. They haven't had time to recover. I mean, those of us who aren't dealing, you know, I'm in the Northeast. It's not terrible like it is in parts of Georgia and Texas. I mean, we're fighting for our lives. And many of us now in different ways, like financial stresses, mental health stresses, while gearing up for whatever happens in the fall. That's not how people are treated when they truly are essential. I think we have to understand what's happening and do what's necessary to take it to task. Healthcare providers should be protected. Patients should have access to healthcare that's not linked to their jobs. How could it be? During a pandemic with record unemployment, now people don't have insurance? What are they supposed to do? I mean, so so while I'm saying all these awful things and you know my the my voice is rising because it, it honestly it makes my blood boil, still I feel that these realities, they were always there. COVID has laid them bare. And now we can do something about it. That's my hope. I, I always see opportunity. And I feel that now we can't ignore it. We have to change this. This cannot be the case. <laughs> You'd hope with all of the destruction that's happening, right? that's the time when you can potentially rebuild and not just build on the unsteady surface. Like, you know what? I like that phrasing of, of laid bare, that it is laid bare and it's really kind of crumbling. And this is a time when if we want to approach this intelligently, which <laughs> wishful thinking, this is it. There's energy. I feel it. And I'm only, I even say this in my like tag, my tagline in Facebook. I am only an occasional optimist, but I believe, <laughs> I, believe I feel we have a critical mass and energy. I I think there's positive change that's gonna happen as a result of this. I do. 
So I want to finish up with just some a uh, little bit lighter rapid fire questions. What genre of book do you read for sheer pleasure? Honestly, I do stick with nonfiction. I have the utmost respect for people who write fiction. I think it can be beautiful and so insightful. I just enjoy nonfiction. So it may sound strange to read that for just sheer pleasure and delight, but, but I really enjoy it. What are you reading right now? Right now I am reading nothing as I try and figure out like how I can get groceries and cook meals. <laughs> but what I will read, this kind of doesn't count. It's not a book, but I read The New Yorker and I'm behind two issues. So I will read some of that tonight. The next book I have lined up is Cast. That will be in it, my next book. What is that? What is Cast? So actually it's Oprah's book uh, club pick this month. I'm so jealous. She's a <laughs> club pick. Oh my God, Oprah, if you're listening. Um, <laughs> I think Oprah is a stimulus listener. Oprah, Oprah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Michelle Harper, Michelle Harper. <laughs> <laughs> but cast, so it's her book club pick. And that's all about the caste system. It's about race in America. Mm-hmm. And she's, I haven't read it yet, but she's speaking about it, how, how it's really a caste system. That's how it's functioned in this society. So I'm looking forward to it. Let me close with this question before we wrap up. What is your call to action for our listeners? And it's a mixed audience of medical right. professionals and civilians, as, as we'd say. So it could be to one, both, all. And that's good because my, my call to action is always, I feel like it's, it's just a general principle. Everything we do is a choice. And even inaction is a choice. And not taking action is making a statement about who we are and what we stand for. So that's my call to action, to be mindful in these moments about what we're doing, how we are presenting ourselves, and what that says about who we are in this world. And if how we are presenting ourselves, if what we are doing is not consistent to what we believe in, to take the opportunity to change that. Oh, beautiful. Well, this has been an absolute delight talking and and connecting. Thank you so much for- Thank uh, you. I'm so glad it worked out. I'm so glad I could hang out with you and your listeners. Yeah. All right. Well, take care. Hey, you too. Bye. And that is it for today. For complete and detailed show notes on this or any other episode, just go to our website, stimuluspodcast.com. And there you can also sign up for our newsletter, see some videos. You can subscribe to Stimulus in pretty much any podcatcher you use. And if it happens to be iTunes, throw down a review and a rating. I read all of them. And more importantly, so do potential guests. Thanks in advance for that. And until next time, be well and keep on rocking.